Hi, my name is Patricio Robayo, and I'm a producer with WJFF Radio Catskill. Welcome to another edition of the Reporters Roundtable. Today, I'm joined by journalist Liam Mayo, other River reporter Chris Riley with the Shore Rock Journal, Joseph Abraham from the Sullivan County Democrat, and Philip Pontuso from the River Newsroom. Before we get to our roundtable, just to let you know that the Reporters Roundtable is now a podcast. Search for WJFF The Reporters Roundtable wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. The issue with the care center at Sunset Lake is an issue we've been following here on the Reporters Roundtable. This week at the legislature, the topic of patient care has come up and the quality of patient care has come up since the transfer of the care center's management. Uh, Liam, if you want to tell us exactly what's the new update with the care center at Sunset Lake. Yeah, so the new concerns about uh, the care center at Sunset Lake have focused primarily on patient care currently at the facility. A lot of public discussion in previous months has centered around who controls the facility and how the taxes are being managed. But at the legislature's most recent meeting, and I believe at the LDC meeting uh, before that, Various members of the public and of the uh, Sunset Lake Care Center Family Council came to talk about uh, the levels of care at the facility. They basically said there weren't enough staff at the facility to properly take care of all of the patients. Uh, Catherine Scott, who's the vice president of the Family Council, talked about how uh, staffers there just weren't enough staffers to have um, all of the residents eat together. So they were being given meals in their rooms for certain meals. There weren't really enough residents to staffers to put people to bed at an appropriate time. So they were having to go to bed really early some nights. And there were even some issues with like caretaking and um, the cleanliness, uh, people being more prone to falls. Her own mother had fallen recently and I believe broken her hip. Uh, so there was kind of a personal investment in that as well. And the result of it was basically just they need more staff. And they, they need more staff and potentially they need more oversight. Um, on the staffing side, the legislature and family council talked about the work the LDC and the a management company for the care center, Infinite Care, has already been doing to get staffing. They've been advertising for staffing. They've been trying various things to get more staff into the facility. It's the reality of the situation is there's a nationwide nursing shortage. So it's not just as easy as hire more people. It's there might not be those people to hire. Uh, family council members talked about how if there really aren't enough people to take care of all of the people in the facility, maybe you shouldn't be accepting so many people. And apparently the limit that infinite care had set for the facility had been gone, had been exceeded a few times, although it was currently at sustainable levels. Um, and the other thing that was talked about was legislative oversight. Uh, neither the LDC that currently controls the, the facility nor infinite care, the management company had gone before the legislature to sort of explain what was going on at the facility. And the legislature sort of agreed that that needed to happen. So it's uh, still a developing situation. Care there is an ongoing concern. And uh, the legislature is going to try and look into it is right. the current status of that. But did the legislature have any response to the sort of the concerns that were brought up in the rules uh, recent meeting? Yeah, they were pretty responsive to the concerns. And I think 
a lot of uh, a few different legislators said that they had received calls and comments privately as well, raising concerns about care at the facility. So this isn't something where they were shocked to hear any of these comments at legislature. They've been hearing this on their own as well. And their response to it was uh, the need for more oversight. They needed to, they said they were going to try and get the LDC and perhaps also Infinite Care, the management company, to come to a later meeting of the legislature. I don't know as of yet whether that is confirmed to happen, but that's something to keep an eye on and see what ends up happening with that. And what's going on now with the Cushetan Town Board, the ambulance district? I know you talked about it previously on the local edition about this, and uh, it seems like there has been some uh, updates on the uh, the ambulance uh, district. Yeah, uh, that's a little bit better medical news, uh, so to speak, than the care facility status. Uh, the Ambulance Corps, the Keshecton Volunteer Ambulance Corps, has been trying to get funding from the town of Keshecton for a little while now. And this last Wednesday, the th April 13, the Corps and the town uh, got together in a public hearing where and a meeting after that and set a ambulance district for the town. And that ambulance district will allow the town to raise a special ambulance tax and will allow the town to contract with the Ambulance Corps and provide them with funding. So without any kind of objections, that will go ahead, or unless there are any objections, that will go ahead. Objections being in the form of a permissive referendum within the next 30 days, I think, or within the next period. So, that, so that's potentially going to go ahead. That's likely going to go ahead. And the Ambulance Corps had a little more information there about the kind of funding they'd be requesting and what they'd be using it for. Um, they're looking to get around $35,000 a year from the town, or that would be their request. Uh, the special district had as its example number around 50000 so it looks like that number would be acceptable for the town. And they're going to use some of that money for their day-to-day -day operations and for their expenses, but also put a lot of that money away in a capital fund toward the purchase of a new ambulance. Uh, they have two ambulances currently, and the older of the two is, I believe it was donated to the Corps in 2000. So it's over 20 years old at this point and is beginning to give them troubles. So they need to start putting away some money to. Um, eventually buy a new ambulance. And that's not something they could do just on their own funding. So the funding from the town is going to be very important for uh, the overall long-term health and longevity of the core. Uh, Joe, uh, to you, the VA hospital, I reading your reporting in Sullivan County Democrat that the possibility of one of the sites near to Sullivan County is closing. What can you tell us about that? Yes. So uh, the VA recently submitted recommendations to the Asset and Infrastructure Review Commission uh, to, quote, modernize and realign the VA healthcare system. Uh, there is a proposed belief that the veterans population is going to substantially decrease uh, in the next 10 years or so. So nationwide, the proposal would see 35 VA medical centers across the country either close or be rebuilt. Um, none of this is finalized yet. Um, the uh, Asset Review Commission is going to be doing public hearings. 
um, before anything gets submitted to the even higher powers that would start making the decisions. But essentially in Sullivan County, uh, the Veteran Service Agency uh, provides transportation to local veterans to two different places, Castle Point, which is in Dutchess County, uh, Wappinger Falls, uh, which about 80% of them go to, and that's for more straightforward healthcare, uh, not like urgent things. And the other 20% go to Albany. Albany is a very large facility, much bigger than Castle Point. People usually go there when they need to get two or three things done, more complicated medical procedures or treatment like dialysis, et cetera. So under this proposed plan, Albany would be rebuilt completely, um, which is fine and dandy to local veterans, but the Castle Point location would close. And um, we are essentially in the metro New York market because there's different markets across the country that they, the VA has broken up the different sectors into. And they think that there's going to be a 23% decline uh, in the local veteran population over the next 10 years or so. And uh, I spoke with the head of the Veteran Service Agency, John Crotty, in Sullivan County. And, uh, you know, he's very much against Castle Point's closure unless they build another facility on this side of the river, uh, which he says would be the responsible thing to do. Uh, right now, what they would do with Castle Point is they would, certain programs would be delegated out to community providers and other stuff would be sent down to Montrose, which is another VA hospital. I'm not 100% as a transplant, even after six years, how to describe Montrose to, to listeners, but it's pretty much on the other side of the Hudson, about 33 to 35 minutes uh, south of, of Albany, not Albany, uh, of uh, Castle Point. So, you know, Mr. Crotty was pretty much saying that it's just a little bit of a hardship. It's not an easy place to get to because you got to cross the bridge down at Bear Mountain, or at least when you cross the bridge in Newburgh Beacon, Castle Point's right there. So he's, uh, those are pretty much the concerns of local veterans that, you know, uh, sort of the access to care and if that would be more of a hardship on them. And ultimately, uh, if they do close it, like I said, he said the responsible thing would be to build a bigger hospital on this side of the uh, river because he doesn't believe that Montrose would be able to to handle that increase. So, And, and how, how far is Castle Point from Sullivan County? Yeah, well, I guess it depends on where you are in Sullivan County. I know from Liberty, it's about an hour hour and 10 minutes. So if you're in Calicoon, it's about an hour and a half. If you're uh, in Wurtsboro, you're looking at probably, you know, 50 minutes, 45 to 50 minutes. So this is a straight shot. It's right on 17 and 84. Right. What are the next steps now? Yeah, it's a long process. Pretty much now political leaders are going to start getting involved. I believe some political leaders out, uh, Philip, uh, way and Chris's way out in Ulster County uh, have already spoken opposition to Castle Point's possible closure. But uh, the air, like I said, commission is going to be doing public hearings and uh, they're going to be submitting their own recommendations to the president for further review in 2023. So like I said, at the right. earliest, any further recommendations wouldn't be until then. So this is going to be a few years off before anything actually happens. But um, local veterans are hoping that throughout the process that people can fight to either keep Castle Point, you know, open or a better alternative be provided if they um, close it. And, and if we take a look at eye on the opioids, we Sullivan County has the opioid, uh, the drug task force here in Sullivan County. And uh, there has been updates on the drug task force. Uh, Joe, what can you tell us uh, about it? Because this is a, 
big issue here we have in our region, uh, Sullivan County, I think, has the highest per death per capita um, in anywhere in state. But what can you tell us about what the Drug Task Force is doing now? Yeah, so first of all, earlier this month, the Legislature Public Safety Committee, uh, you know, Albie Bachman, the coroner, one of the county coroners, always gives a report on opioids, uh, or pretty much in his stats for the month. And he said for 2021, 15% of all deaths in Sullivan County were from the opioid crisis. Um, so it is a substantial issue. Uh, there was recently the Sullivan County Drug Task Force, which is made up of many pillars or organizations, people in the county, uh, meets, has two public meetings a year. Uh, the first one, uh, which was two hours long, was at the end of last month, so a little bit after our last reporter's roundtable. And I had attended that. And on the law enforcement side, one thing they, uh, the DA, Megan Galligan, the sheriff, like Schiff talked about is the rise of fentanyl. Uh, they said fentanyl is pretty much in everything you buy on the street now. Uh, people are marketing Oxycontin or Oxycodone, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, uh, as, uh, you know, their marketing is that, but it's really fentanyl because fentanyl is so cheap that they're marketing everything to be that. And so Mike Schiff said these aren't overdoses. These are poisons. People are buying this stuff and, you know, they're having these overdose situations. So that's looking bleak. One thing that Megan Galligan talked about was that they recently submitted and finalized an application in the Federal Drug Control Policy Center for New York, New Jersey, uh, high intensity drug trafficking area designation. That's a mouthful. Uh, she noted that they uh, had applied for it. I know earlier this week you were at a press conference, Patricio, and I know that uh, one of my coworkers was uh, Chuck Schumer was up here uh, in Monticello Catholic Charities uh, talking about how I believe he was putting his support between helping Sullivan County get this particular designation. What's important about it is it opens up a lot more avenues for funding and other trainings and resources that would be available to Sullivan County. Um, on a separate note, talking about the opioid crisis, the other big part, takeaway from the meeting was that uh, there's been all these opioid settlements taking place uh, and the county is set to receive an initial payment of a little over $6 million. So uh, John Little, the Health and Human Services Committee uh, Commissioner, I'm sorry, the Health Division of Health and Human Services Commissioner has been working uh, after getting input from all these different task force pillars and people in the county on a budget for what the county is going to do with this initial money to help combat the opioid crisis. Uh, some of the ideas he mentioned would be in, uh, covering additional tools for law enforcement to disrupt the supply of narcotics coming into the county, providing significant funding to support staff and training and equipment for members of the task force, partially fund additional years of crisis call center and peer support operations, uh, providing funding for transportation and substance use treatment programs, education and licensure funding supports to county social workers and credentialed alcoholism and substance use counselors, and uh, what he called much needed renovations at Catholic Charities facility in Monticello. Uh, they're also working on combining some of the opioid funds and some money that they have in the Department of Social Services to um, bring a full-time domestic violence counselor to the uh, Child Advocacy Center in Liberty. And uh, they also want to expand access to harm reduction tools, drug drop-off sites, access to Narcan, and are fully funding the request that Hope Not Handcuffs has been a successful program locally. I believe they've had 33, well, as of the meeting, they had 33 successful intakes into the program. I'm sure it's a little higher now. And uh, they've been working on a lot of other things with partners like mental health first aid with Sullivan 180 providing that possibly community-based prevention programs from Sullivan allies leading together. 
They're also looking into a K through 12 substance prevention pilot program. So there's a lot of different programs in the works. Uh, this is like I mentioned uh, many times before, I don't think it's a problem that's gonna go away anytime soon. Uh, and uh, like I said, I have two articles up on uh, our website, scdemocratonline.com, kind of talking about the meeting. And I have a new series where I'm actually gonna be going and talking to different pillars uh, directly. And I had one recently with the hospital and talking about what they provide, what they've been doing with the, with the task force. And there's even been some exploratory talks, nowhere near uh, a final agreement taking place about possibly a drug treatment facility going into where the skilled nursing unit was on the third floor of the hospital, but um, in Harris. But that's, like I said, just exploratory talks at this time. But um, yeah, and that's something that I'll continue. And I'm sure we're all going to be continuing to cover for many months and years to come. Yeah, it's a tragedy, the, what's going on. Is it? Uh, but I'm glad that there is some movement as far as to uh, try to combat it the best it can. You listen to the Reporters Roundtable. I'm joined by Leah May of the Free Reporter, Chris Raleigh with the Chihuahua Journal, Joseph Abraham from the Sullivan County Democrat, and Philip Antuso from the River Newsroom. Yesterday was Earth Day, and this week was Earth Week, so happy Earth Week, everyone. Now, Philip, the River really does extensive coverage on climate. You have the Climate Lab uh, talk about climate on the local edition on Tuesday. What can you tell us about the latest, what the River Newsroom is working on? Yeah, so the latest story that we've been looking at is um, power cable called the Champlain Hudson Power Express. And this is this has been a proposal for for several years now, and basically it's a it's a power cable that would mostly run under the Hudson River, bringing hydropower from dams in Quebec and Canada down to New York City, which currently gets nearly all of its power from from fossil fuels. Last Thursday, the Public Service Commission the state voted to advance the plan and um it's it's uh it's met with some controversy which is a little bit surprising maybe at first glance because it seems like a, a kind of a win-win situation there's been some sort of pushback from climate and environmental advocates um and a couple have even kind of switched sides the the their, the main points of contention are that well there are there are really three the first is that people are concerned about the environmental effects of these large-scale dams. So the CHPE, or CHIPE, as they call it, wouldn't require the construction of any new dams, but there are concerns from some climate advocates that uh, agreeing to this plan would bring uh, a lot of hydropower to New York that's currently being dispersed elsewhere, and it would free up Hydro-Quebec, which is the company behind the proposal to build new dams in Canada. So that's one That's one issue that people are concerned about. The other is, um, well, the other two really have to do with the Hudson River. So as I mentioned, this is a 339-mile cable. It's mostly going to go under the river. So it's going to involve digging <laughs> a huge, a huge trench down there. And there are some people who uh, are concerned about how that might disrupt the ecosystem of the Hudson River. Riverkeeper has kind of been the main environmental nonprofit in the region who's been ringing that particular alarm. And there are uh, there's a group of towns along the river called the Hudson Seven, 
intermunicipal drinking water council. These towns get their drinking water from the Hudson River. And of course, they're they're well acquainted with them, the various pollutions and whatnot that that are um, that have plagued the river for decades and decades now. They're concerned that this type of construction, this level of construction project would only worsen the, the water quality. And then the, the final kind of concern that folks have is that uh, the cable routes could would have devastating consequences if any cargo ship or barge hit it. It's kind of unclear how, how realistic that is at the moment. It sounds like it's probably going to go ahead. As, as I mentioned, it was approved by the Public Service Commission last week. And, and some, some environmentalists who were formerly against it now feel like it's kind of the best option if the state has any hope of achieving its, its decarbonization goals. So it's kind of like, you know, the best of, uh, or the, the, yeah, the, the only kind of remaining option, basically. So, you know, it's, it's years away from, from actually being completed, but if it weren't to be, if it weren't to move forward, then you're starting a process over again that would take years and years and years to play out. And we're just running out of time, basically. Right. So that's kind of a big update. We, we, had, we had a big story on it that we published on Friday. And then we had previously published an op-ed a couple of weeks before from somebody who uh, is, is opposed to the project. So folks who want to read or who want to learn more about Chippy can, can do so on our, on our website at the River Newsroom. Wow, it's, you know, it's a project in one of the subs just seems uh, massive to do, you know, the, the ambition uh, to bring it from Canada all the way down here, uh, the power, like I said, to meet the goals that New York has to decarbonize, uh, you know, seems that might be the best way options. But what's going with, with healthcare? That's another issue that you guys at the River cover a lot. Yeah, so we also, um, earlier this week, published a big article looking at the fate of three healthcare reforms that health advocates have, have been pushing for in some cases for, for years and years. Um, and there's sort of mixed uh, signals on their likelihood of getting passed this year. I, I can run through all three of them real quickly. The first one is, um, is, a, is a plan called Coverage for All. And what that would have done is, well, essentially, the New York State offers free or inexpensive health insurance to, to low-income citizens through what's called an essential plan. And there's a, about 900,000 New Yorkers who are on that plan right now. But undocumented folks are not eligible for it. So this proposal, um, and both chambers of the legislature put forward aspects of this proposal during budget negotiations, um, is called coverage for all, and it basically expand the essential plan to undocumented folks um, and anybody making up to 200% of the federal poverty level. That needed to get done in the budget because it's it's a budget <laughs> question, and unfortunately, it didn't make it into the budget. So that that's pretty much tabled for now. Uh, the the news is a slightly more optimistic on two other bills that advocates are pushing for. One is, a, is actually a package um, called End Medical Debt, which would, there's a couple of bills in this package. One of them would stop hospitals from placing liens on patients' homes or garnishing wages. It's something like one third of state hospitals have been involved in suing patients for, 
for over bills in the last decade. And medical debt is the number one cause of bankruptcy in, in this country. Um, another one of those bills would require that hospitals notify patients about facility fees ahead of time, and it would prohibit facility fees for preventative services. And the last one would make sure that all patients are aware of financial assistance options, which is kind of like a, a nebulous gray area. So those could be, all of those bills could be passed outside of the budget. And there's a lot of momentum behind that package, especially uh, given that we're, you know, in the <laughs> two years into a pandemic now. Um, so there's, there's some optimism that that might get done this session. The other one is the New York Health Act, which is, which was first introduced in 1992, basically would establish a single payer healthcare provider in New York. As I said, it has been, has been proposed since 1992, and, and our reporters spoke to, to Richard Godfrey, the Manhattan Assembly member who's the sponsor of the bill. He's pretty optimistic that this is going to be the year. He might say that because this is his last year um, in office, so he might be hoping that it, it gets done but, um, before he leaves. But he's mentioned that, or he told us that uh, Governor Hochul and her administration have been willing to meet with, with him and some of the other um, state legislators who are pushing the bill to hash out any concerns, which is something that Cuomo uh, refused to do. And in her State of the State address, um, Kathy Hochul said that um, the health of every New Yorker depends on a strong and equitable healthcare system, and she called for bold action. We didn't see that in the budget, so we might see it during this legislative session. The, the funding mechanism for that, the current, the current proposal uh, calls, calls for a payroll tax where 80% of it is paid by employers and 20% by employees. There are estimates that the overall cost of this over time is actually going to be much lower just by eliminating administrative inefficiencies and sort of cutting out the co-pays and deductibles and the kind of middleman in, in the current system. There was a there was a report that we cited in, in our article from 2018 by the Rand Corporation that found they did, they did an analysis and found that the New York Health Act would save 80 billion over 10 years compared to this current system. So you're you're lowering the, the the cost right there. If it does get approved this year, it's going to take some time to implement, of course, and they would have to revisit the funding as part of the budget negotiations next year. So. Right. Some, some optimism that might happen, but um, that one's probably 50-50 at this point. Right. And New York would it be the first state to have that single-player healthcare. I believe uh, uh, Massachusetts has has it, right? Uh, yeah, Massachusetts has it. Yeah, yeah. Massachusetts ha has that. And the um, the extension of the essential plan, which, you know, didn't, didn't get done as part of the budget, the coverage for all, that um, I think a couple of other states, I want to say California and Illinois, also have expanded their, their healthcare. The, the main, to, to undocumented folks, the main hang up there was a question over funding. So uh, the legislature estimated that the expansion would cost $345 million a year. And that was taken from a report published by the Citizens Budget Commission. But the whole administration put the cost at $1.9 without much data as to why their estimate was 
uh, almost five times higher, I guess. So yeah. now we turn to Ulster County. So we turn to you, Chris Raleigh. The Neville Resort, this is the story you've been uh, talking about a lot on the local dish and also here on the Reporters Roundtable. And I understand you recently attended a planning board meeting that sort of decided the fate of what's kind of happened to this previous resort in Ulster County. What can you tell us about the latest update on that? Actually, before I go do that, we should just note that uh, Cresco Labs applied uh, today for their uh, $36 million tax cut rebate pilot and they chose uh, april the 20th to do that and those of us who are in the know know why so anyway that was a clever move um so the next thing after that was last night uh town of warsing planning board finally had the uh, it's not really the neverly anymore it's the somerset warsing resort um also called the treetops resort um application returned and um, a lot of serious changes from the plan we saw last September, uh, including a, a shift of the, the hotel part from the northern part of the property down into the uh, southeast part. Lots of other changes, a bigger lake. Um, the equestrian thing went away. Uh, you know, there are more let's say 46 or 47 villas these are high design villas that are going to be part of this probably with a fairly strong uh, homeowners association controlling things and in anyway it was it was a it was interesting because the atmosphere um the board was excited you could tell that this was the the next big thing and uh, honestly um as this goes through and if it does succeed and, and goes to construction, uh, Warsing and the southwestern corner of Ulster County is in for a serious, uh, um, what we call it, makeover. I mean, Cresco Labs on one side, this resort on the other side. Keith Rubenstein, who's the um, biggest mover and shaker of this for Somerset, did say that there might be 400 jobs. So this is getting serious, you know, and they're also planning. This was an interesting point that they made was that um, they have taken on board the fact that we have a serious shortage of affordable housing in our area and they want to have 100 to 150 units of uh, workforce housing uh, on the site to house as many as 250 people. So, you know, they're taking note that, um, you know, to get employees here, you've got to give them somewhere to live. And that's kind of an issue, I think, that's rippling through the whole region. So anyway, they, they went on and on. There was It's, it's just an enormous project, uh, so many aspects to it. Um, I imagine that it will be in the planning process for some time. They seem optimistic in that they are... Um, going just with an expanded EAF, not trying to avoid an EIS. Uh, those who are familiar with planning will understand what that's about. Uh, and, uh, you know, maybe they'll work. Everybody was basically pretty excited. The board uh, had a few questions. Town Supervisor Terry Houck noted that uh, uh, the town will almost certainly reach out to someone like uh, Dennis Larius of Brinier and Larius to... Uh, to oversee and work with the building department, because honestly, um, a project of this magnitude has never really come to the town of Awarsing before. I mean, it's it's uh, on a scale more than Cresco Labs. I mean, Cresco Labs is quite simple compared to this. 
that this is like you know a, a dozen or more different aspects of things here. So um, that was that was really uh, it, it was interesting to see. And uh, as I said, the the excitement level was there. And, and it affects so many different things. For instance, the O and W rail trail. They're going to work to bring the rail trail through the property and then guide it back up through Ellenville and then on so that the rail trail will go through here, go through this property and carry on down uh, towards uh, mammicating. Uh, you know, so every kind of aspect of that is sort of thing is being taken into account. And another trail access would come on the uh, eastern side of the property where they actually have an extension of their property that goes underneath Route 52 and up the South Gully. Now, for hikers, this can be very useful because you can then go up the South Gully, hick onto the, the Long Trail, which will take you up to Sam's Point and then on to Minnewaska. Uh, you know, there's a, there's, a, there's a lot of sort of interesting aspects to this being being considered. Some sad things, the, uh, the skating rink is gone. There, there's no way to bring that back. All the buildings on the site will be demolished, and uh, once the asbestos and the other toxics are removed, the concrete will be ground up and used for fill or repurposed as cement. I mean, it's it, every, everything that's there now is going to go, including the iconic uh, round tower. That's that's going to. So anyway, yes, uh, th there was that. Um, and it's going to be a five-star luxury hotel and uh, uh, with a, a very high-end uh, market in, in mind. And uh, then there's these, these um, high-end design uh, villas will also be uh, <laughs> hitting that same market area. And they have the look of, uh, well, it's a lot of glass. Uh, very clean, simple design, and uh, we'll see. Because they plan to have just like, you know, A, B, and C design, choose one, right. two, or three, and that's it. Is there enough of a uh, business that would bring in high-end clients? Because we just have in here, Sullivan County, we have, uh, you know, uh, a, a renaissance of resorts of sort of with the Resorts World Catskills and um, other hotels and the Y1, which is a high-end spa that opened up, which mm. now is in foreclosure because the mm. business is just not there. It's just not enough clients are coming to Sullivan County to go make use of the Wild One Resort Worlds there. Do you think that, that there's enough clientele that will actually make it uh, a viable business? Well, your, your, we'll see. Uh, I mean, that's one of the things that they are um, counting on, I think, is that uh, the Shangam Ridge has had quite a reasonable amount of publicity recently as one of the 60 great places in the world that you need to see and that kind of thing. Um, it is unique. Of course, uh, you know, there's very, very few places you can go and find a dwarf pine barrens forest like there is on top of the ridge. For certain kinds of people, I mean, I, I, I try to imagine what sort of people would be uh, attracted to this. And I have to think it would be people who've already done the beaches They've already done Dubai. They've already done, you know, the, a, a long list of things, that, you know, and they don't really want to do another beach. So instead of that, they could do this and they can, you know, go up into the into the Pine Barrens and get bitten by insects and have a great time. You know, I mean, it's uh, it's just the way it is. Yeah. But um, uh, I don't know. You know, we, we will see. I, I, I think there is a market for it. Uh, and this particular world of, of high-end luxury travel has some interesting destinations. 
Um, the north of Scotland, for instance, uh, is a flourishing zone where people go to stay in old drafty castles, you know. Um, uh, you know, and remember, in the north of Scotland, it can rain every day and the temperature will rarely get above 50 degrees, you know. So uh, people are obviously prepared to, uh, you know, muck in and, and enjoy themselves. <laughs> so I, I have a feeling that they may be onto something. They are romantic. Uh, Mr. Rubenstein, as a kid, came to the Neverly, I think he said 15 times for Christmas and Passover. So uh, he has a, a, a romantic attachment to it. Uh, we will have to see. But they're not the only people moving in because even while they were organizing their application and taking into for the DEC and, and negotiating with the DEC about this and that, talking with the DEC about the uh, the bats and I think what else? Oh, rattlesnakes. They've got a they have a rattlesnake population that has to be taken care of and looked after. Uh, but while they were doing that, a bald eagle family moved in and set up a nest next to the lake. So uh, as you know, bald eagles, families, you can't, you, you can't even have, uh, you know, music nearby, yeah. you know, you've got to really be, yeah. So <laughs> that added a little wrinkle to their application. But, you know, this, this, what, it, what struck me about their whole thing was they're calling it eco resort. They're reducing the footprint from the Neverly's 95 acres of disturbance to 65 acres now. Now that's a massive cut. At the same time, they're going to have two parking lots, which will not be asphalt. They're all going to be, it's all going to be permeable surfaces. They're working every angle to make sure that they come across and perhaps will be, um, you know, environmentally friendly uh, and, and living up to this concept of being uh, ecotourism and, and, you know, not disturbing things too much, not creating uh, uh, environmental hazards. We'll have to see if the if the market really will hold up to it. Um, but um, Rubenstein has been checking the figures and looking at things, and he noticed that the region is receiving more and more visitors. People are really woken up to this area. It's very beautiful, and people are coming here in greater numbers than they have in a long time. So uh, it, I think they have a good shot. Also, the market that they're interested in, as I said before, is very high-end, very wealthy people. They may come to New York City anyway, and they may have uh, a few days extra, and may not decide. They may decide they don't really want to have the urban experience. They would like to do something else, right? And they don't want to go to a beach. So they, that there's that. The other thing that uh, we should talk about quickly, because I know your time is limited, is the Honk Lake Dam is being reduced. And there's some good news there for the people around it. Hawk Lake was a, uh, a favorite little lake with a lot of boating and fishing and so on. The DEP, not the DEC, but the New York City DEP, which runs the reservoirs, is about to repair the aqueduct that runs underneath the Shangam Ridge from the Rondout Reservoir and has been leaking a million gallons a day for know, decades, I don't know how long. Uh, so they're going to shut it. When they shut it, they're going to send water, excess water is going to go down from the, from the Merriman Dam, which holds up the reservoir, down the uh, Rondout Creek, and the, um, uh, the Honk Lake Dam was in the way. So that dam, which is made of Rosendale cement, and has been there for more than a century and was originally built for uh, electricity generation. 
uh, has had to be cut. At first, there was a thought that they were going to just blow it up, which would have been quite something, considering it's made of Rosendale cement. But um, they didn't decide to do that. They decided to cut it by, I think, 12 feet, which will mean that the Honk Lake will reform, but in a smaller way. So it'll be like Honk Pond. And there will be a kind of a mixed environment in that area with some grassland and a small lake and then and then a much lower dam that's where the the dep came down on that and i think that will probably be a little bit better for the uh, the local residents they'll have a little bit more of an amenity there than just a um, a kind of a barren well, not barren, but a, a dried out lake bed. So um, that one, that story we've we've covered as well this week. And uh, now we turn our attention back to Cresco Labs and their 36 million. <laughs> <laughs> their $36 million pilot, which, uh, you know, I guess that's the way capitalism is these days, right? Yeah. You get yeah. somebody else to pay for your projects, right? Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. It's interesting, you know, like we talk, we were talking on Earth Week and, and how, you know, uh, you, you you really had to think about how we get our drinking water, how we get our power and, and how those things that we get those, that feeds the city, that feeds us, that people do live around those areas and how they're affected uh, comes to mm. mind. So I'm Patrice Rabao. Today I was joined by journalist Leah Mayo of The River Reporter, Chris Raleigh with the Shawanagak Journal, Joseph Abraham from the Sullivan County Democrat, and Philip Pontus from the River Newsroom. This has been the Reporter's Roundtable. Don't forget to find us wherever you find your favorite podcast at WJFF, the Reporter's Roundtable. Until next month, see you soon. <laughs>